0: This is Artists at Work, stories from people who make the arts their business. I'm Thomas Breeden.
1: You know, a lot of my work actually now is about is teaching people about creativity and how it works. And I use my own artwork as a way in to do that. Uh, And so what I'm often doing is talking to people about a process. So I'm saying, you know, here's where this work comes from. You may see my finished piece on a wall and be like, wow, that's amazing. But what I want to show people is that it's not as straightforward as like I pull out a canvas and bingo, now I start making this thing and it's done, right? And that it's really a series of tiny little steps that have added up for a long time.
0: That's Noah Scalen. He's a visual artist based in Richmond, Virginia, who creates work for shows and galleries and teaches workshops on the creative process.
1: So like right now, my easel is this sticker art piece that I'm making for a show up in New York. And, you know, how did I start making that piece? Well, that had to do with being asked to be in a show and the show's theme was skulls. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna make a skull art piece. And, um, I'm, I'm known for doing skull art, but I I don't make them very often anymore. So it's a little return to that form, but then I'm like, well, how am I going to make that piece? So I start doing some research of, uh, vanitas paintings and memento mori is like the historical concept of, uh, of, um, death as a reminder to live life fully. And so I'm looking at these vanitas paintings and I'm really enjoying how, and those are like, These Dutch paintings that were, again, showing all these objects that remind you of time passing and skulls are always included. So I kind of wanted to make my own version of one of those paintings. But because the show has small works, I'm going to hone in on a smaller piece of a larger image to make it seem like it's a piece of it. Anyway, goes on and on. Right. That's that one piece. But if you were to go further back and say, well, how did you start working with stickers? Right. Then I would go further into a process about how my daughter. Uh, when she was two and a half, we gave her those commercially produced sticker packs and she just would layer them on top of each other cause she didn't care. And it was amazing. And my parents are artists. And so, you know, they're amazed and I'm an artist. So we're all looking at this work, like this is incredible. And she of course doesn't care. We're putting it up. So I'm looking at that going, there's something here. There's something here. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I was sort of in a slow period that, you know, like we are now the end of the year, beginning of the next year. I was in that slow period, and I was like, oh, I need to do something for myself. And so I made a little project where I would do daily uh, something. And so in this case, I was going to do daily song lyrics, translate them somehow. And a week in, I had the song The Rainbow Connection in my head, and that song from the Muppet movie. And I was like, oh, I should make a picture of Kermit the Frog. And uh, so then I was like, oh, you know, that's really colorful. Maybe I should make it as stickers and try this use my daughter's sticker technique and I did and I was really happy with how it came out and people really responded to it and I put it up online and people were like this is really cool can I buy prints of it and then somebody uh, from, from that project me posting song lyrics daily somebody offered me to be in a show in Miami and so I was like oh wow I'm gonna make sticker art for this show because I'm really enjoying this and so that turned into me developing that into a whole concept now that's another way to talk about how I got to making this piece <laughs> But you can go further back to say, well, how did I have this idea about working daily around creativity? Because I was um, in that moment stuck. That's because now 11 years ago, I did um, a project called Skull a Day where I made a piece of skull art every single day for a year. And I did that because I was stuck creatively. I've been running my own business as as a professional creative doing graphic design and illustration. And I was... You know, I'd been working for other people for about six years, been running my own business for another six years, so professionally for a dozen years, and was just burned out completely. I was like, what am I going to do? And randomly, the idea came to me, oh, I should make a skull piece of art every single day for a year. So I start making these pieces, turns into this huge thing. The blog that I put them on goes nuts. It goes viral within two weeks. So now the world is watching me do this ridiculous project. And so that got all this attention, and that got me out of this place of being stuck and feeling like I wasn't making art. Um, I wasn't getting opportunities. I was just sort of doing the same thing over and over.
0: From the Skulladay project, Scalin gained international attention nearly overnight. He catapulted from a period of creative drought to having the eyes of friends, fans, and other artists following his every move.
1: What's interesting is I only did... Two days by myself, basically. Like, I made the first day, put it up on a blog, I made the second day, and that's when I did a different kind of skull, put it up on the blog. And, I, you know, I assume people might randomly find it. But on the third day, I was like, I guess I'm really doing this. And so that's when I was like, I'll tell my friends. So I emailed 100 people. And so that's when people started paying attention. And it made all the difference because I knew I had done a daily project about six years before that where I made haiku a day. And I shared it on a blog, not even a blog that didn't exist yet, on a website that I built, hand-coded. That's how long ago <laughs> it was. And I, and I would put it up once a month, and I would email my friends and say, look at this. It was like a private page. So it was very, very personal. And I, even doing that, though, you, know, you get this feedback. And I think from that experience, I realized like the daily interaction was going to be more motivating. So telling my friends makes all the difference, because I know I'm going to feel obliged to keep going. Having it turned into this public thing so quickly, I mean, I certainly hoped it would get out there. Obviously, I put it on public blog, but I didn't know what would happen, and I didn't expect it to go as crazy as it did or as quickly as it did. A lot of pressure. And the difference between your friends watching, where you can kind of, you know, half ass it or whatever, (laughs) you know, you can be like, oh, this is, you know, the best I did today. And I might feel a little guilty about it for some reason when strangers are watching, I don't want to do that. And I think partially because they don't know me, so they don't know what I could be doing. And so then it felt like I've got to really rise to this occasion, which was great. But that was a really high pressure. And there's no way to do like your best work every day. And so to have to like learn these creative lessons through it. And, and when I was talking about how I teach other people, what I'm teaching people now is a lot of the stuff I learned then, even though I had, you know, I'd gone to school for theater design. So I, was, and I and I got a BFA. So, you know, I was still learning fine art practice as part of it. And. You know, so I learned a bunch of stuff in school. I worked professionally for a long time. And yet there were these huge lessons I learned about creativity from doing this daily project. And a lot of it just had to do with how I was understanding how my creativity worked and the nature of the process. And so to recognize that, like, not doing great work every day was actually super beneficial versus just waiting till I made something great to share it with people or, you know, waiting till I had a great idea instead of just doing things. So, so it was this, it was this good trade-off of like, this is terrifying. Uh, you know, the public's watching. I'm not, I'm going to make these missteps. And yet at the same time, having this great, uh, set of opportunities, I mean, almost immediately opportunities started coming from doing that. And it was only partway through the project when I was like, I bet this could be a book kind of cool, but I've never made a book. I have no idea how to go about it and just put it into the world. And right after I put it into the world, I got an email from a, book publishing agent who was like, would you like to make this into a book? And then she's like, oh, I see you do because you wrote about it. And so it's like that, you know, thing where you you have to you have to put it out there and you have to put it in writing, really. And then things happen. And then it was just this sort of, you know, snowball where I got more and more opportunities and started, you know, here I was sort of pining away that like I was working professionally as a creative, but I wasn't making fine art and nobody was thinking of me as an artist and I wasn't getting to shows and, you know. And then suddenly I've got museums calling me saying, would you let us show your work? Would you like a gallery exhibition? Can you, you know, I could literally walk into the gallery and say I'd like to do a show, and because I had this body work that I could show them already, they could say yes to it versus we don't know what you're capable of or who you are or whatever.
0: That project was a pivot point for Scalen in his life and career. Afterwards, he transitioned from working as a commercial graphic designer identifying himself as an artist and trusting in his creative process growing up with two artists as parents he had tremendous support for his creativity and knew early on that he wanted to make a living doing creative work however it wasn't fine art that began his journey but a different art form inspired by a certain galaxy far
1: far away in 1977 i saw star wars in the movie theater and for people of a certain generation, that is a, a major touchstone because I'd never seen anything like it. It changed my brain somehow. And I was like, this is amazing. I need to do whatever this is. And so then on TV, they had a special about how they made it. And they showed that they took model kits and they took them apart and they made new things out of them. And I started doing that. And so I was really like, I'm going to make special effects for movies. Like, I'm going to figure out how to do this. But growing up in Richmond, Virginia in the 70s and 80s, there was no real movie scene here. And so I got involved in the little bit I could, but the reality was if I wanted to do something like that, theater was going to be the way to go. And so in high school, I went to open high and there was a requirement that it was an alternative high school, it still exists, uh, but there was a requirement that you did a certain amount of volunteer hours. And so I ended up doing the the bulk of those at uh, Theater 4, which is now called um, Virginia Rep. But uh, Theater 4, you know, was glad to have an enthusiastic high school student. So I worked in the scene shop and I built sets and props and I was on the running crew on shows. And I think I got an award when I graduated high school for like the most volunteer hours because I did so many shows. I mean, I was spending my evenings, you know, working on on play after play after play. And so I think at that point, having done that in high school, I was like, well, time to go to college. What do you want to do? And I, I didn't want to pursue fine arts because my parents both had and they both became teachers, which was fine. But I didn't see that as. I didn't see it as a path I wanted to take because I was like, oh, I want to make creative work as my daily job, and I don't know how to do that. So I thought theater seemed practical, weirdly enough. So I went to theater school uh, to learn, at the time, set design, and then I sort of bore it into costume and sound design. And then as part of doing that work at school, I, I was in a really cool program called Tech Track, and they basically taught us everything, which was great. And so I learned, you know, stage management. I learned that I really don't want to do that. Uh, And I, and I got to take other classes around that and sort of did all kinds of stuff. And as I was graduating, well, I should say what I loved about theater school is that we put on plays ourselves all the time because we did that. I learned what it was really like to make things with zero budget and zero time, but I had to collaborate with a big group of people. and It was an incredible thing. And that was all really learning outside of the classroom. We, we chose to do those plays. We weren't, there was only like one a year where we were invited to be part of it. Everything else was us making stuff. So I got this incredible education, but I also realized in the process that like by my senior year, I was like, this is not going to be my life. Like as much as I enjoy this, this isn't satisfying on some deeper level. But when I make the poster for the play, I really like that. Or when I make this book cover designed for a prop, I really like that. And So as I was graduating, I was like, I'm going to be a graphic designer, much to my you know family chagrin, because I was like, oh, hey, I'm going to go to NYU for four years. Uh, But I, but I frankly use my theater education every day. It is the most practical education I could have had. Love it. Um, But now I'm, you know, going off into the world, like I'm going to be a graphic designer and figured it out and got jobs, you know, did it. And then, but the problem is that, that, you know, the seed behind it all was that I was thought of myself as an artist, but I hadn't presented myself as such. And so people didn't think of me as such. And so that's really where Skulladay was the transformation because I had been doing creative work, getting paid. I was in periodic little shows here and there as people asked me, making whatever, but it never was the primary thing. And, I, and so I, I realized that I had spent a lot of time being very practical and missing out on this thing that was really in my soul. And so I was like to go, okay, let's shift gears. And, and Skulladay is what allowed me to transform people's perception of me and show what I was capable of. And that was huge because I thought people knew what I could be doing, but they had never seen it. And that's a big deal.
0: In the years since Scullo Day ended in 2008, Scalin has discovered that his shift in self-identification as an artist by declaring first and foremost that he creates fine art has created opportunities for him that he could not have anticipated in his early
1: career. What I've found is that what is presented as the sort of the correct, I don't know if you would say the correct, but like the sort of the prescribed way to do things, which is like, oh, submit this form or stand in this line never works out. And so every opportunity I've had that's been really good has come through the back door. And basically that means that like when I got to work with, uh, again, have to use specific examples, but the Mütter Museum, for instance, that was because I had published a book and that book had been given to the curator of the Mütter Museum apparently three times. And so I think on the third time she was like, clearly I need to talk to this guy. And she wrote me. And I was a fan of the Mütter Museum before that and was like, you know, never imagined I could do anything with them. And so she wrote to me. Now, does that mean you sit around and wait for things to come to you? Absolutely not. She wrote to me because I had done a, spent a year making skulls and done the work of putting a book out. And so it got in front of her. And so again and again, what I found is those opportunities come because I've done a lot of work. It's just peripheral or it may not immediately add up. And that's hard. But to recognize like, hey, I did want to have gallery shows. I did want to get into museums. And so I was putting out things that was reaching those people. And then I was receptive when the opportunities came. So one of the when I got to work with the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, it didn't come through the typical channels. I wasn't working with the regular curators. I was working with people who were coordinating a family day event. But just because it was a family day event didn't mean it wasn't a real thing in the, you know, real museum. And so I could still say I have work in the museum. I created something there, but it was part of a group that was I had more access to. And so I was able to use that opportunity to create the thing that I wanted to create. You know, when they came to me, they didn't describe what I was going to do as what I ended up doing, which was to make this giant anamorphic portrait in the middle of their marble hall using donated clothing. But we developed it together and it was because that's, I knew I wanted to sort of push myself to get to the new level, but I was doing something experimental. I hadn't done a piece like that at that scale before that. Um So the key with that stuff is especially in this world now you can put yourself out there through tons of platforms and the key is consistently getting yourself out there and that means consistently making stuff to share so that you're developing an interest in your work an audience that that is you know going to give you opportunity whether that's paying you directly or introducing you to people who give you the access to a gallery or a museum so You know, it it really comes back to just making more stuff and putting more things in the world. And that's tough. A lot of people don't want to share stuff or they don't want to share stuff until it's perfect or they don't want to make imperfect things and share them. You know, there's all this fear around all that. And so doing things that get you over that is really important and trusting that, like, hey, you know what? I might put this new thing out and people aren't going to like it, but somebody will. And I'll find that audience. And so even though people want me to do this thing over here, um, I'm still going to do the thing that I'm excited about and trust that eventually I'll find the, the audience for it.
0: Scalen continues to build an audience for his visual art and in recent years has begun building a different audience. Through his consulting firm, Another Limited Rebellion, he teaches workshops and gives lectures on the creative process, the same that has served him well over the years.
1: I know the process works, so I trust it. And so when I'm teaching people the process, I understand that, like, they haven't encountered it before. And so it's going to seem like, oh, this doesn't really add up. And so one of the first things I do when I do my consulting work is we make people do an activity that's sort of similar to, to my Scala Day project, where they're making a lot of stuff very quickly. They can't worry about perfectionism around it. And it's scary for people, but they immediately get these very visceral lessons right away. Oh, wow. When I let go of this fear about this, this happened. Like when I start collaborating, I saw this improvement. And it's great because you can see light bulbs go off but it requires them doing, it doesn't matter that I tell them about it. I can tell them a great story, but it doesn't actually add up to anything in their lives until they've taken it on and, and put it into practice. So getting people over that hump to start is a lot of what my work is about, is sort of just like, and it's, I know it's scary. I know you don't want to do it. Just do that first step. I'll hold your hand. And then you'll see now you're on a path. Now you're moving. Now you've taken that first step. And now the, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins, but it's stuff, it's stuff that's so trite and you've heard it forever, but it's a hundred percent true, but it's also something that you can't just hear and absorb and have apply to you. It really has to involve that action.
0: Scalin thinks a lot about creativity and the process of an artist at work. He's written books on the subject, including creative sprint with his sister and business partner, Mika, which leads its readers through 30 day versions of his Skulladay project so that they might learn similar lessons in productivity. In his consulting, he speaks on the themes of creativity that are essential to producing work. If he had to boil it down to a few, he'd say this.
1: One of the themes I think is really important is just starting small. And and, and I say dream small. And the reason I say that is because it's a little provocative, but also because um, it's it's, you know, I think we tend to dream big and we get stuck by that. And so what can we do to sort of flip that around and go from that macro to the micro. And that was super helpful. The other was other, you know, all of them were big for me, but, but I think the, um, you know, thinking about perfectionism and preciousness around your work is huge. And I am a perfectionist and this is a terrible project to do because I'm going to be stuck making not perfect work. And yet that's where I got all my learning. And so like getting people to understand that, like, maybe your end product has to be perfect for some reason, but that process needs to allow for you to have imperfection and that's where the exciting stuff happens. And now I bake it into my work. Like I really um, try to play with that and, and embrace that. So like when I was in school I had a scene painting class and my teacher basically said to me, you painted the best image in the class, but you were the messiest painter and I would never hire you because of that. And I was like, okay, fair enough, but that's your loss, right? I get it. Like, you don't want your studio space a wreck, but like, that was my process. And so now when I go paint murals, I'm always telling people like, I'm a messy painter. Like that is my identity is that, and it's fine. Like I will be covered head to toe. I'm guaranteed. I'm the guy who's going to step in the paint and walk somewhere. And I'm always looking at my shoes to make sure I'm not, you know, there's plastic down, but it's like, that is what I'm going to do. That is how I I just, I stick my hand in the paint and like, I'm going to just be, make a mess. The product will be good. Right. But that, that messiness is going to be part of it just has to be like some of my biggest works that I do now, these large scale installations, I don't know how they're going to come out. And so I have to trust that process and show up in public and be like, people are going to watch me do this. And what if I just crash and burn and fail? But because I know that I can like solve problems in the moment and make it work. And that as long as I'm not, you know, it doesn't have to be X at the end, it's going to be something at the end, but I can allow that process to transform and make it into the best thing it can be in that moment with what I've got.
0: Thanks for listening to Artists at Work, a podcast from Artstitution. This episode was written and produced by me, Thomas Breeden, with special thanks to my guest, Noah Scalin. You can find more of his work at noahscalin.com. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app so that others can find it. And share this episode with a friend who could use a bit of creative inspiration. You can find us on social media at Artstitution. We're dedicated to building the arts through storytelling. Learn more at artstitution.org.